book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to read one verse uh, in a moment. Let you find it first. Ephesians chapter 1, just reading verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of the glory of his grace. Read it again. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. When a child is born into a family, it is always a great uh, cause of rejoicing, not just for the parents alone, uh, but for the grandparents, perhaps for other siblings, and for family and friends alike. Child is loved, it is nurtured, it is cared for. And as the child begins to grow through the natural stages of uh, growth, it gradually becomes uh, much more independent. Uh, in time it learns to feed itself, and then to toilet itself, and to dress itself. And then, of course, there comes a time whenever <clears throat> it's that first day at school by itself. That's always a nervous time for the parents. And then as it grows a little bit further, it gets into perhaps teenage years, and maybe it's time to buy the first car, or maybe go on the first date, or perhaps even to keep your eye on me, watch, all right? I know the baby's beautiful, but just listen in. Uh, perhaps it's time to settle down and get married, which is a massive step of responsibility. And of course, all goes with that. So what about when you become born again? What happens when we become part of the family of God? Well, sure, there's much joy in heaven. The Bible says there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So we know that there's great joy in heaven when somebody is born into the family of God. We know there's great joy on earth. Uh, friends that are believers will rejoice uh, with you. Uh, the church family will rejoice with you whenever you become part of the family of God. But what then? What's next? What is the process that God uses to get us into a place where we have a full, mature standing as sons and daughters of God. Well, we know there's regeneration, being born again of God's Spirit. That's where we start, isn't it? Uh, that's whenever we come into the family of God. We know that we're God's family by creative right, because He created us, He made us, but we're also then God's family by redemptive right because Christ has saved us. We are born again of God's Spirit. And then, of course, there's justification. How does a holy God justify a sinful man or woman? Well, we know that the wages of sin is death. And so that's what we deserve. 
But Christ came to pay those wages for us and pardon us from that sentence of death. I'm not just talking about physically dying, I'm talking about spiritual death. Separation from God, that means. But Christ came to pardon us from all of that, paid the price to do that, so that we can now stand justified before a holy God. Our sins are forgiven. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, clean. And then there's sanctification. Sanctification is a process, and it's a, it's a daily thing where God is making us into the image of His Son. And of course, uh, we, we have all that goes along with that, that daily walk with the Lord. And then there's this thing called adoption. Adoption. And out of the eight or possibly nine authors of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is the only one who uses this word adoption, and he was very fond of it. And this word comes from Two words. First of all, read that again, Ephesians 1 and 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, we need to first comment on this word predestined because this is a word that causes much discussion, disagreement, argument, sometimes confusion, amongst different believers. So we need to just deal just momentarily with this before we move on to adoption, simply because it's in the same verse and it's part of it. All right. So predestined actually is the formation of two words, pro and pro, by the way, here uh, means uh, before. Pro means before. And horizo Horizon means to mark off by boundaries. Horizon is where we get the English word horizon from. And horizon is a boundary we see in the distance, isn't it, between earth and heaven. And so we see this word then, horizon and pro, put together. And they simply refer to boundaries or destinies that have been predetermined. And it's a predetermination that's been done by beforehand. The American Standard Version simply says that the verb predestined means foreordained, to appoint or to determine beforehand. So, the question is, what has been preordained? What has been predestined? What has been determined by God beforehand? That's where the confusion comes in. Well, first of all, let me say this. Predestination has nothing whatsoever to do with unbelievers. Nothing. There is no scripture that says that God has already predetermined, foreordained, predestined, use whatever term you like. There's no scripture that says that God has already done that with unbelievers and has destined them to hell. There is just no scripture that says it. In fact, there's scripture that says the total opposite to that. For God so loved the world, all of it, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. First Timothy 2.6, Christ gave himself a ransom for all. First Timothy 2.3 and 4, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter adds to that, 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Nothing could be more clear than that. God doesn't want one single man or woman on earth to perish and to be lost and go to hell. He doesn't want, it's not his will. He has not predetermined that. He has not purposed that. But because of his foreknowledge, because God already knows who will receive his son and who will reject the son, then he can and has predetermined, predestined certain things for us who have accepted and received his son. Are you still with me? Every person who has come to salvation as a believer, God already, because of his foreknowledge, according to Romans 8, 29, we'll read this in a moment, has been predestined, has been foreordained, it's been predetermined for him or her to do certain things. So here then is one of those things that God has already determined for those in Christ. Ephesians 1, 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, this word adoption, this is a beautiful thing. This is part of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about it here in Ephesians and other places. Now, whenever we think about adoption in the Bible, we're not to think about it in the way we think about it in the 21st century here. Adoption here means that a couple can take someone else's child who has been given up for adoption or has been abandoned or is an orphan, and they can legally adopt that child into their own family to rear that child as their own child. That's how we understand adoption. But the New Testament adoption is not to be understood at all in those terms. This was a Roman Greek culture. And adoption here means something entirely different. Adoption literally meant son placing. Son placing. There was a public declaration and a little ceremony. A public declaration that that son of that family not from some other family, but of that family, has now come to an age, a teenage year, usually whenever they began to be teenagers, has now come to an age when they have now been placed in the family with full rights, with full privileges, with full advantages, and full responsibilities as a son in that family. It's son-placing. And it's different than what we think about it. And so, up until adoption, the child of that family, the, the, the biological child, the real child, not from some other family, but that child, up until adoption, was counted as a servant within that family. But once it became a teenager, then it was no longer counted as a servant but as a son with all of the rights, all of the privilege, all of the advantage, all the responsibilities. Now, Paul alludes to this in Galatians 4 and 1. First of all, he alludes to that, what I have just described to you, and then he spiritualizes this. 
Galatians 4.1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he be master of all. That's the way that it was in those days. But as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born unto the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, which is a very endearing, intimate, loving term. This is even the Middle East to this day. Crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So adoption was not son-making, it was son placing. They already were a son, but now they're placed. They're set. They have a position in that family of responsibility and privilege. That's what it means. Spiritually speaking, we are made a son through regeneration. When you are born again, you are a son of God. Now, ladies, lest that offends your feminism, all right? You're all sons of God. Just the way men, we're all the bride of Christ. So get used to that terminology, all right? Don't get offended by it. Get used to it. Because we men, we're the bride of Christ. We have to get used to that too, all right? So when I keep saying son, you're all, usually ladies are all included in Christ, all right? So through regeneration, we are made sons of God. We're born again of God's spirit into God's family. But... And here's the difference. But at that very moment when you were made a son, spiritually born again into God's family, you're also placed as a son. You don't have to wait till you became a teenager spiritually or, or, or a gray hair spiritually. At that very moment, you are placed as a son with all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the advantages and all of the responsibilities to live as a son of God. Now here is another wonderful thing about our spiritual adoption. It is both here and now and there and then. It is both immediate and still yet to come. There's always more to come. Aren't you glad for that? We have not received everything and we will not receive everything in this lifetime. There's more to come. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You have a little squint at that. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Well, we can, we can see that in the natural world, can't we? This whole world is groaning. Those, whole, those great tectonic plates are rubbing together and causing all kinds of volcanoes and earthquakes and all sorts of stuff is happening. 
We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So we're still waiting for something here. The redemption of our body. We're waiting for our new bodies, our resurrection bodies. Bodies, the Bible says, like unto his glorious body. This present body is wearing down, isn't it? It's petering out the older you get. We get bowed over. We get frailer. We begin to lose appetite more. All of this stuff is all our bodies. But one day we're going to have a brand new resurrection body. And that's part of our adoption. That's the part that's not here and now. It's there and then. It's the part that's not immediate, but it's future. But it's all part of this great adoption that God has got for us, his children. Now the question may arise. Why aren't we walking in all of our full rights, all of our privileges, all of our advantages, and all of our responsibilities as sons and as daughters of God. Because there's no question we are not walking in all of them. Sure we're not. Well, maybe you are. Eh? I don't think so. I don't think any of us has quite cracked it yet. Huh? Why is that? Well, the answer is fairly simple. It's because we need to adapt to this adoption. Say, what do you mean? By adapting, I mean by adjusting our lives daily, leaning on Christ more, knowing Christ more, spending time with Christ more, learning every day with Jesus, searching the Scriptures, seeing who we really are in Christ, understanding more and more our privileged position as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. That comes through adapting to adoption by adjusting our lives every day. Every day we need to make adjustments, don't we? Don't you find that? Every day you need to make adjustments to how we think and how we act and what we do and what we feel. I have to do that. Ephesians chapter 1 here. Let me just read a little bit from verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body that's us the fullness of him who fills all in all 
And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were all once we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and so forth. What a wonderful portion of Scripture. Do you know, question, do you know what God's highest goal for your life is? Do you know what God's greatest desire for your life personally is? Now, I no doubt all of us have our own personal aspirations. Things we want to do, places we want to go, maybe something we want to be or something we want to have. And all, perhaps all of those are good, legitimate, wholesome aspirations. Nothing wrong with that. But what about God's aspiration for you? What desire above all desires have God got for your life? All right, let me tell you. Here it is. Mark it well. Romans 8, 29. Listen to it. For whom he did foreknow, there's that foreknowledge we talked about a little bit earlier. For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You should underline that in your Bible. Put a ring around it. That is God's greatest desire for your personal life above all things that he wants to do with you that's the key he wants to make you into the image of his son that's what he's working on today in your life in my life that's what he's working on every day to make us more Christ-like and it's a very important thing this is God's great desire but and here's the thing this life will not be enough to see the job complete. <laughs> you will never be perfected in this life. Never. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't draw closer to Christ and allow Him to God to make us into His image and do our best to live right and proper before God as Christ would have us. Of course we should. But knowing our frailties, knowing our humanness, knowing our propensity sometimes to sin, we're not perfected yet. But God's plan is all through your life as a Christian to make you more Christ-like and one day 
to make you like Christ completely. Not that we'll ever be the same as Christ because he is the eternal son of God. We're sons of God, but he is the eternal son of God. But into his image. 1 John 3 and 2, listen to what it says. 1 John 3 and 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. There's going to come a point, a culmination. Whenever we see Christ, whenever we'll be completely and fully made in his image. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And this is what God is working in each of our lives every single day to make us into that. But this life is not, it's not long enough. It's not, it can't happen in this life. No matter how close we could get to perfection, it's never going to be. But one day it will be. And this is the wonderful thing about our adoption. It's here and now, but it's not yet. There's still a way to go. Well, that encourages me. You know, I know it's an old cliche, but somebody says, have patience with me because God is not finished with me yet. And he isn't. He's not finished with any one of us yet. He's still chipping away at us. Remember the story of the sculptor standing before a big block of marble and somebody says, how could you make a big angel out of that block of marble? Oh, he says, it's simple. Anything that doesn't look like an angel, he says, I'd just chip it off. <laughs> Anything doesn't look like God's son in our lives. He wants to chip it off and work at it and bring us into the image of Christ. So God works in us to complete us. And he sent his Holy Spirit to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. The task still continues and it will to that day in the glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 puts it this way. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In him also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now without laboring this point because we have dealt with it at length, Several times. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment in your life. The old King James says earnest. Earnest money. That's still used in solicitor terms today, by the way. It's money put down in good faith. It's an earnest. It's a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee in your life that Christ, his son, is going to come back and claim his purchased possession. He had to go away for a while, but he's coming back to claim those who are sealed with his Holy Spirit because they belong to him. And as it were, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment, but he's going to come. Now, the price has been paid, been paid at Calvary, but in this sense, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. He's the earnest, he's the guarantee, the Bible says that Christ is going to come back for you and you and you and you and you who are sealed with the Holy Spirit to take on to himself. 
See, this is all part of this wonderful thing called adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God. Please note that this is according to the good pleasure of his will and to the praise of the glory of his grace. According to the good pleasure of his will. God delights. He has great pleasure. It thrills him to know that you are his son and his daughter. He delights in that. Just the way whenever we get our child, we delight in our children. They're ours. We delight and we want the best for them. We love them. And God loves us as his children. It gives him great pleasure. I don't know why. This is the grace of God. Why should he love us? Who were rebellious and sinners. Who went through maybe some of his many years of our life never even casting a thought about him. Why should he love us? It's all of his grace. It's all of his mercy, isn't it? But he does. So we receive that and accept that and thank him for that. He rejoices. He delights in that. According to the good pleasure of his will. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's pleasure, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Psalm 1611, at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Somehow we've got the image of God as this great big being who's just waiting to smite us and just to bash us and grind us into the dirt. But he loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. You can't get greater love than that. And now that we belong to him, he loves us even more and more and more. Isn't it a great thought to think that this moment, this very second, that almighty God loves you with an everlasting love. And it says, and to the praise of the glory of his grace. You and I as sons and daughters of God will bring great praise and glory to his grace. God wants us to be in the position being made like unto his son where people will look at our lives and have to acknowledge that must be the goodness of God in their lives. That's the grace of God. That will glorify his grace. Not us. It doesn't glorify us. We deserved hell. as <laughs> we deserved. But God in his great mercy loved us, saved us. And that magnifies his grace. And so that's why we talk about men and women being trophies of God's grace. You're a trophy of God's grace. God can hold you up as a trophy of his grace and say, look, see what I can do. See what I can be in life. See how I can change a man or a woman. Isn't it wonderful? This is the gospel of Jesus. So you have been adopted into the family of God. Full rights, full privileges, full advantages, and full responsibilities. 
adoption. It's a wonderful thing. People say, you know, you shouldn't preach doctrine because it's dry and it's dusty and all the rest of it. Well, there's a great doctrine for you, adoption. Well, I hope it wasn't dry and dusty. Actually, if you get the hold of it, it's life-changing. Make all the difference to your Christian experience. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank